0: Hello, I'm Michael Watson, and this is the Influence Watch Podcast. We all want honest, free, and fair elections in which it is easy to vote and hard to cheat. In theory, at least. As state legislatures across the country consider legislation to restore the normal legal processes for election administration after the emergency changes made in 2020, the federal Congress is still pondering HR 1 S1, legislation to override essentially all state level election administration regulations. Joining me to discuss where the legislative debates at the federal and state levels over election procedures stand is Jason Sneed, Executive Director of the Honest Elections Project. Uh, before we begin, Jason, can you give us some background on yourself and the work you uh, you guys do at Honest Elections Project?
1: Well, certainly, and, and thanks for having me on today. The Honest Elections Project is a nonpartisan, nonprofit group, and we are dedicated to a simple mission. Uh, fighting for everyone's right to vote in free and fair elections. And that's an important thing to note here because often we hear a debate um, uh, is happening in the country where the argument is that there are people who are for voting rights and people who are against them, which I think is is completely uh, off base. Rather, the debate is about whether or not the right to vote is about more than just the right to cast a ballot, but also a right to have a fair election with clear rules and safeguards that prevent fraud and ensure that every ballot is properly counted. And that's what we're advocating for. And we use um, uh, litigation, we use public advocacy, we engage in policy work at the federal and the state level to advance that very simple uh, bipartisan goal. Okay.
0: Uh, so we'll get to the sort of the current legislative debates, but sticking with that background, could you explain what you see as some of the best practices and the, the important principles that, uh, that underline an effective election administration, uh, a system that gives you uh, that goal of easy to vote, hard to cheat, and fairly tabulated?
1: Well, I think that the the first principle that you have to, to think about is the fact that you've got to balance two uh, sometimes competing uh, uh, principles, one being access to the ballot box and the other being the security of the voting process. And so that really gets to what I was alluding to earlier with the debate that we've got, where you've got one side of the... Uh, of the political spectrum saying, no, it's all about access and any rule, any safeguard like a voter ID law or anything else that could be um, a, a barrier to voting has to be stripped away, even if that means that the process as a whole will be less credible. And, less, and, less and,
0: the, well. and they're calling, I mean, in 2018 in the midterm elections and in 2020, obviously in the presidential election, you know, we had what were, I want to say they were hundred year records for turnout they, That's right. They That's were very. Right, they, the turn, turnout was exceptionally high, uh, and meanwhile, again, you have the other side who say that there's this crisis of voter participation that requires that we strip away all these safeguards, including in places where the safeguards existed in uh, in 2018 and 2020 with those very high, uh, very high turnouts.
1: That's right. In 2018 and 2020 we saw record levels of turnout and participation. In fact, in those elections we have set uh, diversity and turnout records, historic levels of participation. And guess what? During both of those elections you had 35 states that had voter identification laws on the books. You had about half the states that regulate ballot trafficking, which is a, a practice which has become central to the debate now. It's that is that
0: is, that is, is. Uh, that is also known as ballot harvesting. That's where the where political activists, political consultants, go, can go around and collect ballots from voters. Uh and, and then take them either to a, uh, mail-in, a mail-in box or a drop box or a polling station, yes?
1: That's right. That's right. Um, uh, we, we have seen very frequently over the last year there have been arguments that this practice should be made legal in all 50 states. In fact, that's one of the elements of H.R. 1, which is the big federal legislative package, that Congress has been debating for months in which we are, are, are hearing rumors that they will attempt once again to try to pass in, in just the next few days. Uh, but at any rate, we've had all of these rules and procedures which have been presented to us by progressives as uh, not just barriers to voting, but actually uh, intentionally discriminatory measures that are designed to suppress the vote. And yet, in election after election, particularly in the states that are supposedly you know, leading the, uh, the charge to restore Jim Crow, uh, we see high turnout, high participation. Including and high, and high turnout United and high
0: States. participation and high turnout and high participation across ethnic groups and socioeconomic class.
1: That's right, that's right. So take Georgia, for instance, where uh, in 2018, black voter turnout actually exceeded white voter turnout in, in terms of a percentage basis. And keep in mind, that was the election that Stacey Abrams lost when she was running. And, and still
0: denies that she that she lost.
1: Exactly, she still denies that. And uh, and to this day, in fact, she, she maintains that it was stolen through voter suppression. But this just gets to one of the fundamental fallacies with the argument that we hear uh, anytime we're talking about voting when it's coming from the left, which is there's no data to back up their assertions. So whenever they say that we are mired in voter suppression, you actually look at the turnout data and see that we're setting records and that these laws are actually incredibly popular, right, including with some of the voters who are Yeah, but I mean I
0: mean I mean you know it's you know it's something when uh amid all this debate at and we'll get to the sort of the, na- the national legislation that's under consideration, but as as it was being considered you know, you had, I believe it was Senator Warnick of Georgia, Democrat of Georgia, uh, Representative Clyburn, Democrat of South Carolina, uh, coming out and saying, no, we're in, totally in favor of voter identification. No one has ever opposed—we have always been at war with East Asia. No no one has ever opposed this, uh, even though, of course, H.R. 1 bans it outright.
1: That's right you you've seen this tremendous shift in the, the the narrative and the rhetoric about voter ID, but I would caution folks you know not 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 to believe that too too easily or too readily because Oh right because because the they, they have a they
0: have a like there's a giant asterisk there that it yeah that when they when they are talking about ID they're not talking about like a driving license they're talking they're saying like a utility bill would count.
1: That's right. That's right. When, when we're talking about voter ID, we're talking about the gold standard. We're talking about photo ID laws, and we've actually done uh, recent polling, in fact we, we just got out of, the poll with, uh, out of the field with a poll from our C4 partner, HEP Action, 81% of Americans think that you should have to show a photo ID when you cast a ballot. 81%, and that includes overwhelming majorities of every demographic group in the country. Democrats, independents, Republicans, black, white, Hispanic. It doesn't matter. This is not a controversial subject, but when the, the left now, you know, embraces voter ID, and, and I think the fact that they have utterly failed to make any headway in convincing people that these laws are discriminatory should be abolished, and that's why they've changed their tune. Um, they're not talking about photo ID. They're always talking about, as you say, the big asterisk, right? It's it's really, you can do just about anything. You can use just about anything. We really don't want this, but we don't want to, to have folks just sort of close the door on our faces when we say we're opposed to voter ID because almost everyone is in favor of it. So they just don't wanna seem quite as extreme as they really are.
0: Sure. Uh, so onto the legislation that is under consideration at the national level. Uh, on our podcast, we've discussed H.R. 1, S. 1, the so-called For the People Act, uh, a couple times before. We had uh, Alabama Attorney General Steve Marshall uh, and conservative election lawyer extraordinaire J. Christian Adams on uh, to discuss that legislation. Uh, just for, for those of our listeners who might have missed those episodes, could you give us uh, just sort of a quick, uh, you know, 30-second overview of what it does and then where it stands in the process right now.
1: Sure. So H.R. 1 is an 800-page bill. Uh, it's called the For the People Act, uh, which anytime you get those sorts of euphemistic names, I, I, I sort of look at it uh, uh, with side-long glances. Um, or, Orwell, Orwell
0: would be proud of Congress's titling of bills.
1: That 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 he would that he would. Um, But at any rate, this uh, this particular piece of legislation would rewrite voting voting laws across the country um, in all fifty states. It would get rid of voter identification requirements. It would mandate. Uh, vote trafficking or vote harvesting as some people call it. It would uh, mandate same-day and automatic voter registration. It It would make substantive changes to the election laws in all 50 states, and it would do it on such compressed timelines that a lot of these requirements would actually be in effect in the 2022 election. And the reason I mention that is because we all saw how chaotic things got, particularly during the pandemic primaries last year, but also in the general election as rules were being changed at the last minute, procedures were being essentially
0: invented. Yeah, and they and they the were fly. and they were being cha- they were being changed on the fly by courts, they were being changed on exactly. the fly by executive officers. And mm-hmm. and like, you know, kind of one way I like to look at HR1S1 is it wants to make make your elections californias with the month of trickling in ballots, mail-in vote, you know, mass mail-in voting on a lackadaisical timeline uh, not knowing who won for you know, potentially weeks at a time, uh, as opposed to say Florida, uh, which after 2000 totally revamped its election administration. And now, you know, you ask just about anybody that, you know, their, uh, you know, their results are, are quick, they're accurate. And, you know, with, within a couple hours on election night, you know, who's, who has, uh, carried, carried Florida.
1: That's right. You know, Florida has done a 180 in the last 20 years. They've made regular, consistent updates to their voting process, and we saw the benefits of that on election night in 2020 when they processed uh, an unprecedented number of mail-in ballots, did uh, what a lot of states really struggled to do, declared a, a winner, and then everyone went to bed. And that's the way that it really should be in all fifty states. But
0: this, I mean, and 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 going back, uh, you know, one election further in twenty eighteen, the governors and senate races were really really close. Um, but because Florida's election administration laws are so transparent, because it's you know mail-in voting deadlines are firm, within a couple, you know, obviously there were recounts just because it was close. But you know we knew, you know we we knew the state of play. I'm pretty sure by the end of election, by the end of election week.
1: That's right. Yeah. Florida's Florida's laws are generally uh, quite solid and uh, and better than a lot of other states, particularly in some of these absentee ballot contexts. And like I said, they've they've made regular changes. But, you know, all of that would be put in danger by the the sorts of policies that HR1 would would impose, particularly when it comes to mail-in voting, right? I mean, you've Mm -hmm. got uh, mandates in there to continue to allow ballots to come in and be counted for days after after an election actually ends, which is part of the reason why some of the states uh, that struggled to produce results in 2020 did so, because they were allowing ballots to come in after election day and continue to count those. And Mm -hmm. sometimes that was a change that was forced by courts, uh, at the last minute which raises I think some some quite uh, valid concerns you know what if those late ballots that are illegal under state law actually were to make the difference in the presidential Yeah race? right that I mean it was it
0: was, it was it was crisis. Pennsylvania was the one that that, that happened because right. you know, Pens, you know for, fortunately I guess it wasn't close enough that those late or whatever it was late postmarked ballots that were gonna be go before the state Supreme Court, Uh, you know, they they didn't end up making the difference. But again, the fact that we're talking about it suggests that there's a problem here.
1: That's right. I mean, we dodged a bullet in in several places, Pennsylvania being one, uh, Michigan, uh, Minnesota. These are are, are states that had these sorts of changes. And my group actually backed litigation in Minnesota to push back on that, and we got a a good victory there. But we we dodged a bullet. Um, uh, And now we're talking about trying to rewrite the laws in all 50 states that make those sorts of close encounters more likely in the future. And I think that that's only going to damage the credibility of, of our elections at a time and that I, and I always, we I always really like need to be bolstering
0: it. Right. And I always like to compare, uh, you know, the way that we admi- – I mean, the way that we administer them now and the way that – certainly the way that, uh, you know, uh, Democrats uh, in, in the Congress want to bring the California model to the entire country uh, with Great Britain. Uh, where, you know, okay, yeah, they only tend to elect one office at a time, you know, or a handful of offices at a time, but, you know, everybody's there in the counting room watching the count, and they all count, and then when all the votes are counted, the officer, you know, the returning officer appointed by the local authority gets everybody up on a stage and reads out who won. (laughs) You know, you get the decisive result on the night. (laughs) Uh, Compared to, you know, California with the, you know, votes trickling in for two weeks.
1: Right. Yeah. I think California lets them come in for 14 days. Very, very different sort of election experience. But look, I mean, when you ask Americans what they want, you know, when when we we talked earlier about this fundamental debate between the left and the right about whether you should be making the priority getting rid of of voting safeguards to make it easier to vote, or bolstering safeguards to preserve the, the credibility of the election process. We actually see, in poll after poll, Americans are overwhelmingly choosing to bolster safeguards. In fact, it's a three to one margin, so it's not even close. And so when, when we see these sorts of, of, of polling results, we see the unpopularity of vote trafficking, we see the overwhelming popularity of voter ID, we see what the American people want. They want elections they can trust with safeguards that detect and deter fraud. And that's what we really should be delivering, and that's what a lot of states have been doing. They've been passing reforms that make it easier to vote and harder to cheat, and they're getting pilloried from from the left for that. And it's all part of this process to to gin up, to agitate, and to drive people to try to support passage of these really extreme federal uh, bills like HR one or HR four that would rewrite the rules, weaken these safeguards, and I think do uh, great harm to that, our, our. That's Democrats. a that's
0: a good segue. Uh, HR four, what the, what is called in. Congress, the John Lewis Act, what would that legislation do? How does it differ from H.R. 1, uh, and why is it still problematic?
1: Yeah, so we we talked uh, a little bit about H.R. 1. That's sort of plan A, to get at the various state laws that impose safeguards that the left does not like. Well, plan B, the backup plan, is H.R. 4, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. And I think that we're going to be hearing a lot more about this in coming days as as Congress starts to pivot away from HR one to either a hybrid of these two bills or to HR four, and what this bill does is is resurrect a practice that's called pre-clearance, which was instituted in 1965 with the Voting Rights Act, that went into states that had real, honest-to-God Jim Crow laws on the books. You know, this is this is the th- this this the 1960s. yeah
0: this this was about like breaking up poll taxes and. Right, Allo- exactly. Allowing African Americans in places like Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, to to be able to register to vote.
1: That's right, exactly, and to so and to, and to cast ballots
0: free of intimidation.
1: Exactly, you know, you 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 have got you've got a, a a civil rights movement that is pushing back against you know ninety years, a hundred years of disenfranchisement and truly racist laws backed up by threats of violence trying to prevent uh, black Americans from casting ballots. So Congress steps in and says, we're, gonna, we're going to impose new requirements on any state that has uh, very low turnout and has things like poll taxes or literacy tests on the books. It's called pre-clearance, and that means that any changes that you make to your voting laws, you have to go to the federal government and ask permission for those laws to go into effect. Well, that was continued. It was originally an emergency law that was put into place for five years, recognizing the severe problem that they were confronting. Uh, That law was put into place for five years. It was renewed in successive Congresses. Ultimately, preclearance was struck down by the Supreme Court in 2013 in in a case called Shelby County. And the reason it was struck down was because Congress had not updated the formula that it used to identify which states no longer had the sovereign power to regulate their elections in decades so they were essentially still saying you know Georgia, so so, Texas, so so
0: so long story short congress is lazy keeps waving waving renewing the voting rights act through without taking into account the things that have changed in well it is now 70 odd years
1: that's, well that's right they they hadn't updated the coverage formula uh, it, to reflect, you know, updates over the last, I think, forty years. At the time that the the Supreme Court was uh,
0: was was considering, yeah, I, th- I think I think I got my math wrong. I think it's uh, 50, it, I think it's fifty five. Yeah, fifty five now, and for and it, and they did this like ten years ago, so it would have been about forty something.
1: And the and, and you know the, the the thing is, we have to recognize that in 1965 we had real problems, but over the ensuing half a century. The situation markedly improved, and now a lot of the states in the old South that were covered under this pre-clearance formula actually have voter turnout that is higher than, say, a lot of blue states in the Northeast, and that includes, you know, higher rates of black voter participation. So we we are living in a markedly different time. That was part of what the Supreme Court said, and now we have Congress stepping in and saying, actually, that's not the case. We want to restore pre-clearance and we want to blow it up even bigger than before. So they're actually, in a, in a weird way, saying that things are worse than they were in 1965, and they want to include new laws that say that no state, not just the states that are targeted in the Old South, no state can pass a new voter ID requirement, can improve the way that they clean up their voter rolls without having to come to Washington and asking permission. And quite frankly, if the DOJ lawsuit against Georgia, where they're going after them for their new voting law, is any indication of where the Justice Department is on these issues, they would veto every, every attempt by a state to improve the security of its voting Yeah, I'd,
0: I'd, rec- I'd recommend our conversation with Jay Christian Adams. He, he gave some, some of his experience uh, from on both the department side and the outside side uh, of some of the shenanigans that the DOJ pulled in his day uh, before preclearance was struck down.
1: This. yeah, Christian was actually in uh, the Justice Department and knows a lot of those stories and they are fairly alarming but the, the bottom line is that H.R. 4 is the backup plan it would, it would put Washington in a position to be able to control election systems across the country to be able to go after laws that again are, are broadly supported including by black voters, Hispanic voters, Democrats, Republicans it would allow these unelected officials to simply veto those for political reasons. And the other thing it would do is encourage progressive groups to continue their legal assault on states, uh, always Republican states, that have voting laws that they don't like, because the more lawsuits you file, the more uh, notches you can, you can stack up, and then when you get to so many so-called violations, which are determined by these uh, lawsuits, then you're, you're brought under preclearance. So that mm-hmm. would allow them to go, not just after the Old South, but any conservative or Republican state where they want to prevent that state from being able to control its own voting laws just by filing cases. And we saw last year they brought over 200 lawsuits just um, in in one year. They've got virtually infinite resources to bring these cases, and they absolutely will use them to try to make sure that states have the voting laws that they want rather than what the voters want.
0: Mm-hmm. So, uh I guess one last thing, one last topic before we break. Uh, obviously, as this has been going on at the national level, states have been uh, debating. Uh, have been debating their laws. I mean, we've seen. We, uh, you mentioned uh, Georgia's legislation uh, that passed earlier this year. Um, I know Texas. There was some. Uh, there is ongoing. Uh, Conflict in the in the state legislature with the Democrats uh, busting the quorum to prevent the passage of of uh, election administration legislation. Uh, what sort of what sort of reforms are states proposing, and uh, kind of where are we where are we there?
1: Well, we've seen a tremendous burst of energy in, in, for election reform in a number of states, and. And states like Georgia, Florida, Texas—they've really led the way. They've also, of course, caught the most flack from the left. But as they say, you know, if you're if you're if you're taking fires it's because you're over the target. And I think that what you see in their laws is exactly what we ought to see in every state. You know, they're bringing voter ID to absentee ballots. So. All you have to do is write a driver's license number, or, or the last four of your social, or the ID number from a free state ID, which is an important thing to note here. These are free forms of ID for anyone who needs them. And that's all you have to do to comply with that requirement. That's an objective standard because then uh, election officials are reading a driver's license number rather than what they're usually doing, which is, comparing signatures, which is a much more subjective and error-prone prom- error process, and ballots can be rejected erroneously. So we're improving the voting process with voter ID for absentee ballots, strengthening protections against organized political vote trafficking, we're protecting the sanctity of voters who are waiting in line by ensuring that groups can't come and give them you know, food, things of value, and then also get around anti-electioneering laws, which are pretty right. common in the United States. But but that's what we've seen in places like Florida and Georgia, these attempts to engage with voters and try to push them to vote for particular um, uh, uh, folks while they're waiting in line. These are the sorts of reforms that we're seeing in lots of states, and I think part of the reason that you see these histrionic type attacks, you know, saying these are Jim Crow voting restrictions, is because they're so reasonable, they're so popular, and they're, they're, when they're put into effect, voters are gonna realize all of this complaining is really about nothing at all. And so they have to go after these in, in outlandish sorts of attacks because they've got nothing else to use, and they are desperate to try to prevent states from putting these laws into effect. And so that's where I think we're headed with a lot of other states considering similar reforms. And there are, are, are political fights brewing in Pennsylvania where the governor actually just said he's okay with voter ID, which is a pretty big uh, walk back. And so uh, my, my compliments to the legislature there in Pennsylvania for getting that. But you've also got Wisconsin, you've got Michigan, you've got lots of other states that are, are still considering legislation. Uh, trying to improve the voting process, particularly the security and transparency of the voting process.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, is there anything else that you'd like to that you'd like to promote, or uh, any anything forthcoming from Honest Elections Project that our listeners should know about before we go?
1: Well, we've got a few more um, uh, lawsuits that we're working on right now, so I think that we'll be uh, in a position to talk more about those publicly in a short while. And we also have some fantastic resources on uh, both our website, uh, honestelections.org, and also our partner group, HEPaction.org, where you can go and and your listeners can get uh, fact sheets about some of the federal legislation that we talked about, as well as some of the latest polling. And I think that the latest polling is really going to tell a powerful story about how in the last six months of unprecedented effort to try to change public perception about voting from the left, they have actually pushed more people into the quote unquote conservative camp so the numbers for voter id continue to go up support for broad safeguards continue to go up so i think this has been a really interesting uh natural experiment of sorts but it tells one tells us one thing that that most americans want it to be easy to vote and hard to cheat and we're going to continue to work to help them uh, make sure their voice is heard
0: all right well thank you again for joining us uh jason you can uh see what Uh, what his group is up to at Honest Elections. uh, I'm sorry, what's what's uh, y'all's web web address? Uh,
1: Honestelections.org and for our partner group, HEPaction.org.
0: Honestelections.org and HEPaction.org. That's our show for this week. We encourage our listeners to subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five-star rating. Those ratings really help us find new listeners, especially if they come with a positive review. We'll see you all next week.